People of God, let's now turn again to 1 Corinthians as we work our way through this book and chapter 7. Sometimes when I'm preaching, I will pause to preach a text that is more directly related to communion on Communion Sunday. I did not want to break up the continuity of this chapter. So we come to chapter 7, and we'll begin reading at verse 25 to the end. Let's humbly bow before the Lord our God. Our Father, as we come to this text, we are thankful for the triumph of grace, for the cross of our Savior, for His redeeming and reconciliatory work, that He is the propitiation that satisfied the divine justice that went out against us, that the Holy Spirit applies to our hearts this redeeming work that through the effectual operations of the Spirit of God, the elect of God are drawn out of darkness and into light. That, Heavenly Father, this irresistible grace worked within us in Thy sovereign love and mercy has been Thy plan for all eternity. And even now, Heavenly Father, that as we gather together as a congregation, we gather under the sovereign sway of Thy scepter, that moves over us and around us and through us and even within us. And we know this to be a good thing, for we are lost and undone in and of ourselves. We are proud and arrogant and need to be humbled, and we would humble ourselves intentionally before Thee even now, asking that we may be subservient to the authority of the Word of God that our families may be blessed in that way, that this church may be so blessed that individuals and also that lost sinners here this day will come to faith in Jesus Christ, even as we preach these themes, some of which are difficult to understand. And we ask and pray these things in the name of the only head and king of the church, our sovereign Lord, who shed his blood to redeem us, rose from the dead, intercedes for us, and who is coming again. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. We begin at verse 25, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the Word of God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers, the appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as as though they were rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. 
and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. The Word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's review. Paul, by divine inspiration, is answering questions that have been sent to him by the members of the church at Corinth. Among those questions in chapter 7 are those questions that are dealing with marriage. In verses 1 through 9, he says that marriage is good, that it is one ordained method of avoiding fornication, that marriage calls for ongoing mutual intimacy for the one man and woman bound together in holy matrimony, and celibacy is a gift that not everyone possesses, and in most cases, those not so gifted should seek to marry. Last time, in verses 10 through 24, he dealt with divorce between believers, stressing the permanence of marriage. He dealt with divorce among the unequally yoked, the believer that is married to an unbeliever. The call to contentment in hard providences, including difficult marriages, and Paul stresses the cross at the center, ye are bought with a price. Now he continues to send these answers. We have to read between the lines and try and understand what the questions were, but we continue now to see the answers that he sent by divine inspiration to the church at Corinth with verses 23 through 35. This is your first point, counsel to the unmarried counsel to the unmarried. And in this section, quite literally, he addresses virgins or maidens, although the word can be sometimes used for both sexes, as it is in Revelation 14.4. He says some should choose not to marry. Verse 25, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And possibly he is answering the ascetics who were 
pressing marriageable youth not to marry. And Paul has no direct statement on this, no command, but out of his faithfulness, he gives them much to consider, things they need to think about when they consider whether they should marry. Now, remember, this is not all that Paul the Apostle, by divine inspiration, says about marriage in the New Testament. And he has a very good, robust, and beautiful attitude toward marriage, as we know from Ephesians chapter 5 in particular. Nonetheless, some may want to consider the advantages of remaining single. Paul does not say and did not teach that one state was more spiritual than the other, married or unmarried. He recognizes that the Lord has given singleness from some of his children, as we saw in verse 7, and he states a number of reasons and advantages of singleness here in this text. So here's a, a list from the text, and let's note them, and then we will look at them in more depth. Reasons and advantages for singleness. The present distress, verses 25 through 27 that you might be spared many of the world's problems, verse 28. The passing of this world, verses 29 through 31. Freedom from marital anxieties, 32 through 35. And then there are a couple of additional ones to the engaged and the widows that will be apparent to you when we come to that section this morning. So the second thing we want to do is look at that list in a little more detail, and you can call this advantages of the unmarried life, advantages of the unmarried life. The first advantage is the present distress or impending crisis needs to be taken into consideration. And so he says in verse 26, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. It may be inexpedient to marry because of the present distress or impending crisis, either present right then or on the horizon for the church there in Corinth. Now, this is not something different from the eschatological concern that he will move to in just a moment, and really that is apparent throughout, but possibly is more pointed in referencing present issues facing the church there at Corinth. Christ's coming will be preceded by much trouble. And Corinthians need to take seriously that we live in the end times, the time between the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ, when troublesome times will increase for believers. And so he may be saying here, We live in the present evil age, awaiting the return of God's Son from heaven, and this might encourage some not to marry, but to be freer to serve Christ as a segment of the church deepens in apostasy and as lawlessness abounds. And that would relate to verses 29 through 31. But it is also possible, and I think probable, likely, that some of that trouble was already threatening the church at Corinth. So he refers to the impending crisis or the present distress as something that is there or about to be there. Now we know that Corinth was a difficult field. We know that there was a united attack on Paul when he was in Corinth in Acts chapter 18. 
that Sosthenes was beaten in front of the tribunal while Gallio, the proconsul, ignored the beating. We also know from early history, Fox's Book of Martyrs, under the account of the persecution of Nero, mentions in a list of those who perished in this persecution, a man named Erastus, who was the chamberlain of Corinth. I looked it up. This would only have been a little more than a decade after Paul wrote what he wrote here about the present distress. So it may have been that Paul, at least in part, had in mind the persecution on the horizon at Corinth. More broadly, Priscilla and Aquila, we know from Acts 18, the first couple of verses, were there because of the Jewish expulsion from Rome, which included Christians in those days. And maybe these provide good reasons to consider not marrying. Didn't the Lord Jesus say that the time will come in which men would put you to death and think they were doing God a favor in John 16 too? Imagine living right now in North Korea or in Afghanistan and you consider marriage. When a man is concerned over whether he can provide and protect his wife, his children, provide for and protect his family, and you're living in Afghanistan or North Korea, you certainly would want to turn to this passage and think through very carefully and wisely whether or not that would be the thing to do or not. And so I think that's what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he deals with the present distress in verse 26. But he goes on to say, another reason for not marrying, to consider not marrying, is that you may be spared from many of the world's problems. And so he says in verse 28, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. And the word troubles here is the word thlipsis that means pressure. So there are many pressures in this life that you will not experience if you remain unmarried. And he may be saying that he wishes to spare some the problems that come from marriage because of the added pressure of persecution, or he simply may have in mind any of the troubles that are heavier due to marriage in these latter days. And in any case, the point is that some may, some, not all, may better serve the Lord if they do not marry. And then he gives another reason, the passing of this world, which I think is the pervasive issue that is, that is found throughout the text. And it's in verses 29 through 31. Let's look at it again. This is what I mean, brothers. So this is his main point. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So the time is short, he says, on God's eschatological clock, Whatever that may mean in our understanding for our own lives needs to be taken into consideration when we think of marriage. The word there for, for short means to roll up or wind up, like the, the winding of a, 
of a, of a winding cloth at death or the rolling up of a sail. And he says, then the fashion of this world passes away. Ta schema, the schema, the scheme of this world, the external form of this world, the present state of, of things is in the process of passing away. If you'll keep your mark here and go to 1 John for a moment, chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It will be good for us to look at a passage that helps to elucidate the mindset that is found here. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. 1 John 2, 15 and following where John the Apostle, by divine inspiration, says, do not love the world. This is 1 John 2.15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. He's talking about this world system. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world, see verse 17, and the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is very much what the Apostle Paul is underscoring here in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Remember, every generation of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should live as if we are going to be that generation when Jesus will come again. Christians should live as if Christ could come and it's impending. And we each must therefore assess our circumstances and how we may best serve the Lord, knowing that that is true. So Paul thinks eschatologically, and he wants us to, whether married or unmarried, and this is what he means by husbands and wives living as though they had none in verse 29. He does not mean cease to love, cease to nurture, cease to care for. He's saying our ultimate focus is elsewhere. Our hope is not here, but on the glory that awaits us, even in our dearest relationships, Christ and His coming must be preeminent. And when he says, for the present form of this world is passing away, we conclude, enjoy God's good blessings that He gives to us in this life. They are His gifts to us, but know that this world will not last and live with eternity in your eye. And so the attitude must be guarded as we are immersed in everyday living with worldly attitudes that bombard us. We must learn to meditate upon this theme, saturate ourselves with what the Scriptures teach so that our goal is to focus on the hope and not upon the things of this world because it's all passing away. Young people, this word eternity, you know, speaking of eternal things, this word eternity that Paul the Apostle speaks of here in this passage is so very essential and applicable to you now. The thought of even one of you going into eternity unprepared is frankly overwhelming to me. Do you give thought to this? A great man once said, take away the hopes of a blessed immortality. And what wise man would desire to live? Live for eternity. 
But there's another reason that he gives in this passage that one might want to consider not marrying, and it's freedom from, from marital anxieties in verses 32 through 35. And there, just to read verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's his point. Through it all, our devotion, that it may be undivided to the Lord. So those who do not marry have advantages if that is their calling, seeing that they may serve the Lord more directly and with greater freedom, more at the drop of a hat, so to speak, or perhaps in a dangerous setting. And though there is better freedom to serve the Lord, the text is not constraining anyone. Marriage is God's good gift, and it is a good thing Clearly, the text teaches that there is freedom according to how God has gifted you and according to the wisdom that you may apply to certain circumstances. Both states, marriage and singleness, are privileges when they are lived for the glory of God and for the sake of Christ. When the motivation is the gospel, when the motivation is the Lord. And so, in verse 35, take all these things into consideration and then act as you think best before the Lord, you are at liberty. The Apostle Paul is simply saying, given these things, you need to think and be wise. Because marriage is a very serious matter. And living for Christ in this world is a very serious matter. And for some, it's going to be a help And for some, it may be a hindrance, and you need to be wise and think carefully. So having looked at those advantages of the unmarried life, we next see counsel to the engaged. Counsel to the engaged in verses 36 through 38. Now, this to me is the most difficult of all the sections in this chapter. In the whole chapter, it's very difficult to to get at what precisely the question might have been, and there are exegetical issues that I won't even be bringing up because it would require all morning to go through those various questions that exegetes have had on this passage and still have. But bear in mind that Paul is answering questions that have been sent to him and that in these times it was typical for fathers to arrange the marriages of their daughters. So in this passage, some interpreters think, and I favor this view, that some fathers, either from birth or early in the girl's life, have dedicated their daughters to a celibate life. But in any case, when some daughters came to marriageable age, they desired to marry. They simply weren't gifted for the single life. So you have the the, the problem that the father is the one who is responsible for his daughter marrying or not marrying, and at the same time, he has dedicated his daughter to a celibate life, knowing all the things that we've been saying in this chapter are true, and yet when she becomes of marriageable age, she wants to marry. She does not want to be single. And so speaking of the betrothed, your betrothed probably references the father here, And he is saying, a father does not sin if he allows his daughter. The term here is virgin. He does not sin if he allows her to marry. And verse 36 says very plainly, let them marry. 
which may indicate, let them marry, may indicate that there is a couple or presumably an engaged couple or seeking to be engaged couple that he has in mind. There may have been a specific instance or more than one that had been written to the Apostle Paul. And I take his passions, you see verse 36, if anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, probably references the father toward his daughter. If his passions, is that the father or is that the young man? I think it's the young man, but exegetes differ. If his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. So you imagine for a moment that a daughter comes to her father all this time. She has probably been told or taught, prayed for, as a girl that's so dedicated to the things of the Lord that she wouldn't marry, it's going to free her to do all kinds of things for the Lord. And she says, Dad, I know that was your promise, but it wasn't mine. I want to marry. And there's this young man, godly young man. I, I want to marry this young man. We, we're moving toward an engagement. And not only knowing that the Lord will return and that there are advantages in serving Christ, but also knowing that in Corinth there is or soon will be serious persecution. Yet, I'm not called to the single life. And so Paul's instruction would be, you haven't sinned, Father, if you allow this betrothed young woman to marry. A father does not sin if he allows his daughter, again the term is virgin, to marry. Let them marry. And I take, I think I indicated his passions to refer to the engaged man who cannot simply have a so-called spiritual relationship with this girl, or it encompasses the woman as well with her passions also. In any case, they simply are not gifted to remain single. They are free to marry, says God through the Apostle Paul. There are advantages in not marrying, especially given verse 26, but nonetheless, they do not sin if they marry. Marriage is God's gift, and it's good. So Paul earlier has recognized that the celibate life is not everyone's calling. Well, there's a lot to consider here, isn't there? This was not only God's word then and there, it is God's word here and now. Some young man thinks he may be called to be a missionary in a very dangerous part of the world. Are you going to marry or not? You may, if the girl is willing. But you need to think. That's all Paul is saying here. Let's think. Remember the time in which we live. Remember the issues that you're going to be facing. And then he moves to give some final counsel to widows. And that's your fourth point. Counsel to widows in verses 39 through 40. Now, let's read the, these two verses. Verse 39. A wife is bound to her husband. See, he's, he's actually changing the subject here. A wife is bound to her husband as long as she lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet, in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. 
So the Apostle Paul then addresses widows. Marriage is a lifetime commitment. Now he's dealt with the whole question of divorce, but nonetheless, marriage is a lifetime commitment, very important to stress. She's bound to her husband as long as he lives because this marriage was a covenant for life. And if the spouse dies, the widow or widower is free to remarry. The Apostle Paul uses this actually as an illustration in Romans 7 when he says in the first three verses, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only so long as he lives? Thus, he uses this as an illustration of how we are free from the law. Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. The point here is if her husband dies, a widow is free to remarry, and if she has the gift to be single, the Apostle Paul thinks in most cases she will be happier in her service to the Lord, meaning she will have more freedom in serving the Lord and serving His people. And I can't know this, but I have wondered if what may be behind this is the order of widows of which we read in 1 Timothy chapter 5, which I have preached in which only widows 60 years and older were enrolled who served the church and were served by the church. Remarriage in older age sometimes goes very well, and sometimes it does not. And loneliness, understandably, can be the leading concern. But service to Christ by serving others in the church can be a remedy to that. And in any case, a lot of wisdom, whether you're a widow, a widower, whether you're considering marriage for the first time, a lot of wisdom is required. And so in verse 40, yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God applies to what he has said about being more free to serve the Lord. The end of verse 40 is a tongue-in-cheek remark directed at those who think that they know better than Paul, who writes by apostolic authority. It's sarcasm, if you will, as Paul jousts with the party that advocates only celibacy on the one hand, or maybe only marriage on the other. And these things run like a spine through the whole text. But... One truth here deserves to be stressed for one and all, for the widow, for the widower, but also for our young people. So I hope I have the ear, ears of every young person here. The woman who is now free to marry because of the death of her husband, Paul says, if she chooses to remarry, must do so only in the Lord. Only in the Lord. That's right there in verse 39. And of course, the requirement is not limited to widows. 
It is required by what we know of the new birth. You see, young people, if you are born again and you consider marrying or widower, widow, if you consider marrying someone who is not born again, you don't even see the same world. You understand truth that that person will never understand unless also God chooses to save and redeem that person. You live in the kingdom of light. That person lives in the kingdom of darkness. You live under the sway of the scepter of Christ the King. This person doesn't recognize Christ at all. You want to honor the Lord as Lord of your life. And this person has no interest in that. And in the passage that was read by Pastor McNeil this morning from 2 Corinthians 6, even though it is not addressing specifically marriage, it is applicable to marriage. Come out from among them, saith the Lord, touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you. What concord hath Christ in Belial? You saw that. And so there's this antithesis that exists between the regenerate and the unregenerate, the believer and the unbeliever that needs to really be underscored. This world system from which you have been delivered and they have not. So the passage is applicable to anyone who is considering marriage. So young people, entering marriage requires a great deal of prayer and wisdom and consultation with godly people a great deal of wisdom, and it is not just any Christian that should marry another Christian, much less an unbeliever, but even considering another Christian because of differences of growth, differences of maturity, understanding, and commitments. But at minimum, what the Apostle Paul is saying, though I think he's saying more, as I will mention in a moment, at minimum, what he is saying here is that there is this non-negotiable, when you marry someone, that person needs to be a true believer in Christ, discernibly so. Marry only someone that you have the best reasons to believe, knows Christ savingly. And if Paul can counsel widows this way, who have a lot more experience in life than you do, young person, then you certainly need to let this counsel nestle down in your heart that only in the Lord. I read somewhere that a Puritan said, if you are a child of God and you marry a child of the devil, you got that? Okay, if you are a child of God and you marry the child of of the devil, you will be sure to have trouble with your (laughs) father-in-law. Now we laugh, and the Puritans did have a sense of humor. And they had a great view of what marriage was all about, and sex and marriage, and all the things that the Puritans are usually put down for, but this guy had it right. Thinking of marrying an unbeliever, do you really want the devil for your father-in-law? We laugh, but it's serious, isn't it? It's okay to laugh, but it's, it's dead in earnest. And the phrase in the Lord might mean not only marry a Christian, but it might be, when it speaks of marriage, it might be adverbial in the sense that it's explicating what marriage is all about. It might mean in a Christian manner. 
in a manner that takes into consideration all that is related to your union with Jesus Christ. And then it would include not only marrying a believer, but the wisdom to discern the commitments of those you might be marrying. If, for example, you are really committed to the Reformed faith, Reformed view of doctrine, worship, and life, if you are really committed to this Reformed and Presbyterian viewpoint, then marry a spouse also who is so committed. And many other things should be taken into consideration. So step by step, the widow or any Christian desiring to marry must do this God's way and seek God's will. And I hope no one will forget this biblical counsel. You know the difference between counsel and advice. Advice is the best I have to offer, given what I know. Counsel is thus saith the Lord. This is biblical counsel. This is what God says. This is what he demands. And my goal is that we all become stable Christians in this unstable world, honest down to our bones about all things, about our sin, God's grace, Christian living. And the time in which I think we can sometimes be most dishonest is when a young person is attracted to someone, considers marriage, and is willing to set aside things that really need to be on the table for discussion. So we need to ask ourselves hard questions and apply Scripture without qualification. Are my motives sifted through the Word of God? Is my heart submissive to the Lord in this decision? And nowhere is this needed more than in this question about the person that you marry. Now let me bring this to a conclusion. I want to stress three things. We come to the conclusion of this entire chapter. I want to stress three things. First, I want to stress one man, one woman in marriage. In other words, there is no confusion in God's word on homosexuality, transgenderism, sex outside of the marriage bond, or any of those things that the world professes. There's no confusion about it. Behind everything the Apostle Paul writes here is the book of Genesis. God created man, male and female, male and female, he created them, and the coming of the Lord. These two poles, and God made man, male and female, and marriage is between one man and one woman. That's the only marriage. There is no other. And so do not be influenced by this world system, which continues to want to form our children and young people to believe and embrace and promote immoral things, things that I wish I did not even have to mention. So that's first. Second thing, I want to stress living with an eye on the return of Jesus Christ. Is the time short? Now, whether by the brevity of life or by the return of Christ, the time is short. As you know, I read a lot of the old authors. One of the things you find in the old authors is how many of them lost child after child after child. I was reading a letter of one of the great Presbyterians in our historic past. There's just a brief little thing. There were three deaths mentioned of people near to him in that short letter. 
And now in the providence of God, this is God's blessing, we have medicine and we can extend life more than we once could because that is God's doing, it is his plan. But nonetheless, life is brief, no matter how long you live. So I want to stress living with an eye on the brevity of life, the return of Christ, really begin to think that way, not in a morbid way, no, but in a way that actually helps you to live very properly in this world that is passing away. In other words, live with the coming of Christ in mind and have done with lesser things. Don't get all entangled in the lesser things of this world. And then a third thing I want to stress as we have worked our way through this chapter is redemption. The Apostle Paul twice stresses this at the end of chapter 6 when he says, you are not your own for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. And in chapter 7, verse 23, you were bought with a price, do not become slaves of men. So the Apostle Paul's main emphasis on redemption is because you are redeemed by Christ, because of that wondrous love, because of what Jesus did when he sacrificed himself as your substitute and shed his blood, then that tells you how to live. You don't belong to yourself, you're purchased, you're his possession. But I want to stress something else about redemption that I think is good and right and appropriate, especially in the age in which we live. I want to say, have you been terribly sinned against in a marriage, in a relationship? If you have been terribly sinned against, the gospel is overflowing with comfort for you, believer. And the Lord will sanctify that trial to you. And there are people sitting in this fellowship this morning, in this congregation of worshipers, who have been through those hard, hard things, who have become the most beautiful Christians. And the gospel is full of comfort for you. Or... Maybe someone is here and you have made a mess of life, a mess of a marriage, and the sin was yours, and the fault was yours, and you are self-centered, and even now as you sit here, you're lost and you do not know Christ. I will be blunt with you and plain with you. I will not in any way soften what was done if you fit that description. But at the same time, I will tell you what Jesus says. Jesus says that he came not to save good people, but to save lost people. And I call you to believe and repent and trust in Christ. And when you do so, and are made a new creature in him, and the blood of Christ cleanses your heart, then you are in a position to understand not only the heinousness of that sin, but the greatness of our forgiving God who forgives believing and repenting sinners. 
and to apply to yourself, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And it's that that we remember as we come to the table of the Lord. Amen.